Hi everyone, I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Deb Flaschenberg. I'm your host for Yoga Birth Babies, and today I'm speaking with Debbie Amos. She started out as a labor and delivery nurse, labor support doula, a Lamaze childbirth educator. She's a speaker at a lot of the Lamaze conferences, and she currently runs The Family Way. It's a publishing company for childbirth education materials and training new childbirth educators. Needless to say, she knows a lot about birth. And I tracked Debbie down because I was looking for somebody who could speak intelligently and kind of break down a study that came out last year by JAMA, the, the Journal of American Medical Association, specifically about laboring down. And in the past, it was something that people said you should do, and then they said you shouldn't do. And one of my teacher trainees, graduates, um, Claire Sandberg, asked me if I had if I could do a podcast on, if I could dive into it. And I had been looking and looking and looking for somebody that has studied this. So when I came across Debbie, I asked her, I begged her to come on and speak. And she did. So Claire, thank you for the inspiration of getting someone to talk about this. This one's for you. Okay. Now, before we get to my chat with Debbie, a few things I want to just shout out. Teacher training, New York, the fall, full wait list. Yay. Already registering for the spring. And then don't forget, we're going to be in Charlotte, North Carolina at Yoga One. We're going to be at Willow Street Yoga. Um, that will be in the winter and back in the spring, back in Richmond, Virginia at Yoga Source. Also, sound the horns, big news, prenatal yoga center is expanding. We are moving from our current space to a new space. It's a really big deal for me. I've been at the current space for 17 years. When I think about it, that is actually the longest place I've ever been in residence ever. Even as a kid, I moved to the house I grew up in when I was three. And so this is the biggest commitment of, of location I had ever been in in my life at one for this one space. So it's a big deal we're moving. To help us move, I, uh, I started an I Fund Women campaign. It's a crowdfunding because moving, especially in New York City, is a big deal. So for those who are listening that would like to contribute to donate to our iPhone women campaign, I've got some really fun prizes, including one of my favorites is, um, if you've ever been in New York, you might know in Central Park, they have benches that are dedicated. And so we're dedicating yoga mats. You can get your name imprinted on a yoga mat and it'll be forever the so-and-so's yoga mat. We also have a thank you all. So we've got some great prizes. If you want to contribute and donate, it is ifundwomen.com forward slash projects forward slash changing dash lives dash one dash birth dash time. That's a lot to remember. You can also go to our website, prenatalyogacenter.com, and it's on the homepage, ifundwomen.com, and you can check out our campaign. Okay, I've talked enough. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, you can hear my conversation with Debbie. Enjoy. Today, I want to give a shout out to Dr. Greg Rubenstein of 57th Street Chiropractic, conveniently located in Midtown Manhattan for 28 years since an established practice with emphasis on pre- and postnatal care. 
He's also experienced working with newborns, infants, and children. Dr. Rubenstein shares our yogi and midwifery philosophy of the importance of the mind-body connection. Research supports that chiropractic care during pregnancy may result in safer and easier delivery for both the birthing person and the baby, decreasing likelihood and the need for interventions like epidural, pitocin, and cesarean birth. Proper preparation for birth should always include some form of safe exercise and prenatal-specific chiropractic care. Aside from less pain during pregnancy and faster and safer births, chiropractic care can bring the expectant person a greater sense of confidence and trust in their body's ability to function normally during pregnancy and birth. So if you already have lower back pain or neck pain or round ligament pain or just want to stack the deck in your favor for an easier birth, call 57th Street Chiropractic today. 212-977-7094 or check them out at www.chiropractormidtown.com and schedule online. And don't forget to tell them PYC sent you. Hi, Debbie. How are you? Uh, Just great. I'm so excited to speak with you. I remember when this, the, we're going to talk about the whole JAMA um, labor down study, but I remember when that came out not long ago, and I have been looking for someone to break this down and talk about. It's something that amongst myself and other childbirth educators, there's just, how do we present this? Like, what is this? So when I stumbled upon you, I was like, Hallelujah, praise because I just was like, yay, finally someone can can talk to me about this. So this is exciting. All right, so I guess let's start with just tell me a little bit about yourself and what brought you to this work. Um, my father was one of the first OBs in the Dallas area to l- allow fathers into the delivery room. And when I was in nursing school and I would come home on vacation, if he had a patient going natural, he would wake me up and take me with me to the birth. And so that kind of indoctrinated me into childbirth. I mean, every time, I mean, I still cry at every birth because it's so miraculous and incredible. And when I was in nursing school, I actually worked in labor and delivery part-time. And I hate to admit this, but we were still using twilight sleep. What year was that? It was in the early 70s in Austin, Texas. And when someone got twilight sleep, we literally got out the restraints and tied them to the bed because they would, you know, really be out of their minds with the twilight sleep. And so combined with seeing how birth could be with my dad and seeing how birth sometimes was in the hospital, um, I was very interested in natural birth, took classes with my first son. And after that, really wanted to be a childbirth educator to share information with parents. And I never dreamed at that time that it would turn into a lifelong career and passion for me. That's exciting. So tell me about the work that you do now. Um, I taught with a community childbirth education group, and we decided to write a handbook because people were leaving, um, their handouts under the chair. We thought, surely we could put this together in a little book. And so several of us got together and it took us a whole year. We wrote a book and it was, we were at the right time and the right place. And that book was successful enough that it turned into a full-time business for my business partner, Jeannie and I. So today I manage the bookstore sales Um, Our student handbook is Prepared Childbirth the Family Way, and we've sold over 2 million copies of it. And 
our selling point is that we keep it up to date. And so that brings me back to why I'm so um, interested and adamant about research and keeping up with the research in the field. We've also trained birth doulas in the past and childbirth educators for Lamaze. And today, um, I, I don't do either of those things on a regular basis, but I do a, a lot of speaking. Um, I do, I've done keynotes for Dona International and ICEA and Lamaze most recently in April in Pittsburgh. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's how I found. I mean, I because I'm also a Lamaze Child with Educator, I've seen your name floating around and around, and then I, <laughs> you know, because it's there a lot. And then when I was um, looking through the Lamaze information about the speakers back in April, when I saw what you were talking about, I'm like, oh, here's my lady. So let's <laughs> jump into this. Will you talk a little bit about the Journal of American Medical Association, the whole study about laboring down? I guess let's, you know, before we even get in that, maybe we should even start with the basics. We're going to talk about laboring down, but can you describe what that even means? Okay, that's a great place to start. Um, obviously, during labor, women have contractions, and those contractions in second stage gradually rotate and move the baby down. And even if a mother never pushes, that baby will eventually come out because of the work of the uterus. And women who don't have an epidural feel that incredible pressure, and it's almost impossible not to push. But women who have an epidural on board sometimes don't feel that urge to push. And so laboring down allows the woman to rest and no one is directing her to push until that baby gets way down, usually on the perineum, and she will eventually usually feel an urge to push. And this is kind of a personal issue for me because I had an epidural with my first pregnancy and one of my most vivid memories, which is not a good one, is that I had to push for about two and a half hours because I didn't feel the urge to push. And they were, you know, counting to 10 and trying to get me to push. And my stomach hurt so much the next day from all that pushing. And most of it probably was not effective until the baby was down on the perineum anyway. So I love the idea that women are encouraged to tune into their own bodies and not push until they feel an urge to push. Mm -hmm. So prior to this study, what's been understood as the benefits of laboring down? Because I know that the study that we're speaking about, it questions that it's saying like, maybe we shouldn't be laboring down. So what is understood as the benefits? There, there was quite a few studies that showed that with laboring down, second stage was longer because the mother was waiting to push, but the amount of time that she spent actively pushing was much shorter. And some of those studies showed that there were more spontaneous vaginal births with laboring down. So less forceps, less vacuum, less cesareans. Um, so the evidence was so good that in 2017, ACOG, in their committee opinion on limiting interventions in labor, recommended that laboring down be offered to women who wanted to have that rest period um, before they began pushing. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality 
for your most precious gift. Hannah Soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. Right, so then this other study came out. Was it just last year, I think, 2018? Yes, it was. Right. And so this, and as a childbirth educator, I feel stuck because, you know, ACOG supported, in my brain, the physiology of the uterus is changing shape. It's retracting. It's getting strong at the top and pushing baby down. That makes so much sense to me. But then this new study came out and it seemed to debunk that whole idea that about how the body works. So can you start to break down the main points of the study and how they're being interpreted? Yes. And, and first of all, it was a randomized control trial. So that's the good news. Um, it took place at six different medical centers or community hospitals across the country. So it was geographically representative. Um, those eligible for the study were Maliparous first-time moms at or beyond 37 weeks, so full term, um, and they were admitted for either spontaneous or induced labor, and they had neuraxial analgesia, and neuraxial just means epidural or combined spinal epidural. Um, they randomized these moms at complete dilation, and that to me was the first red flag because um Anyone who's been with women during birth knows that you don't always know exactly when that cervix gets to 10 centimeters because that's how they defined um, complete, well, that would be complete dilation. Um, There was 1,200 women randomized to the immediate pushing group, and they were instructed to push as soon as they were randomized into that group. And 1,204 women were randomized to delayed pushing. They were instructed to wait 60 minutes or until their provider told them to push or until they had an irresistible urge to push. And the hypothesis for the study was that the rate of spontaneous vaginal delivery would increase among nulliparous first-time women with immediate pushing compared to delayed pushing. So that was the main focus of the um, study, and the hypothesis was not supported. There was no difference in the number of spontaneous vaginal births between the two groups. Um, But they actually stopped this study um, about three-quarters of the way through because the researchers were concerned with increased Um, postpartum hemorrhage and choreo in the delayed pushing group. And, you know, as a childbirth educator, that's not what I wanted to read. Mm -hmm. And so I delved a little deeper into the study. And what I found really disturbed me because the those results depend on the definitions that you use. Mm -hmm. So they reported on both postpartum hemorrhage and on severe postpartum hemorrhage. And ACOG, I know this gets a little technical, but I think this is the information you want. Mm -hmm. The ACOG has a definition for uh, postpartum hemorrhage. And that definition in their committee opinion on, on postpartum hemorrhage is uh, blood loss of a thousand mil or more in either vaginal or cesarean 
first. For this study, the definition was for a vaginal birth, blood loss of 500 mils Mm. or more. So they really cut it in half. They cut it in half. And, you know, a lot of um, experts believe that 500 is not that big a deal. And for severe um, postpartum hemorrhage, they defined um, for vaginal birth, blood loss of a, of a thousand millimeters, milliliters or more for vaginal birth and 2000 or more for cesarean. So really the definition was more like, um, the definition was not consistent with their earlier definition. They were being, and, and I'm sorry, If you look at the outcomes for severe postpartum hemorrhage in the study, no difference between the two groups. Right. And so it actually reads, if you don't know that, that you don't see the difference, it seems very alarmist. Oh, gosh, we wait and it's going to have that as opposed to, okay, ACOG has already said under 1,000 is within the norm. Right. Right. So that, that was a huge red flag for me. And then the other issue that they found was increased choreo um, in the delayed pushing group. And describe what that is. Uh, That's an uh, infection um, of amniotic fluids. It's an infection that occurs during second stage. And one red flag is that they did randomization at complete dilation. So I'm thinking that there's a good chance that they did extra vaginal exams in order to accurately determine when the cervix was dilated to 10 centimeters. And the more vaginal exams you have, the greater your risk for getting an infection because you've got, you know, foreign objects up your vagina. Yes, (laughs) objects, yes. And in a 2017 committee opinion, ACOG was very specific in their definition of choreo. They said it's when the maternal temperature is greater than or equal to 102.2 degrees Fahrenheit, or when the maternal temperature is 100.4 to 100.2, and one additional clinical risk factor is present. So that's very specific. In Mm -hmm. the study, the definition was as diagnosed by the treating physician. So the cynic in me worries that someone could have a temperature far under the, the prior clinical definition, but elevated a little bit, and the doctor says, "Oh, she's got choreo," mm-hmm. and so that could be why the increase also could be the increase because of extra vaginal exams. But when they looked at endometritis, which is an infection in the uterus in the postpartum period from delivery up to six weeks, no difference between the two groups. So the most important point I'm trying to make is if the researchers had focused on the severe outcomes, severe hemorrhage, which is partially consistent with ACOG's normal definition of hemorrhage, and endometritis instead of choreo that's as diagnosed by the physician, then there would be no differences between the two groups. But There's one other thing they looked at, and that's third and fourth degree lacerations. Mm -hmm. The overall rate of lacerations between the two groups, which would include first and second, no difference. But if you just focus on third and fourth degree lacerations, the rate was higher in the immediate pushing group. I noticed that a few thoughts. Did they explain why the rate was higher? And then when I started to sit and think about that, 
I was just curious if it's because, and this also is going to go back to another question I had about the station of where the baby was when they started pushing. Do you think, or was there any detail about with these vaginal births, was there a higher use of vacuum or forceps? No difference between the two groups and no difference um, based on station. So they didn't really explain why there was differences between the groups in third and fourth degree lacerations. But if you go back and look at other research, um, my guess is that when the women were told to push immediately, they had people directing them how to push. Because if you don't feel the urge yourself, it's harder to push. And so I am guessing that the nurses were doing the traditional counting, you know, hold your breath, push as hard as you can, you know, all those things that we've seen in the delivery room. And directed pushing is associated more with lacerations in, in other studies in the past. So that's, that's my guess. They did not address that. They really... Um, focused on the increased choreo and the increased hemorrhage and didn't focus at all on the third and fourth degree lacerations, which for women. That's a huge deal. I work a lot with the postpartum um, population and a third or fourth degree tear of the perineum really impacts pelvic floor dysfunction. (laughs) So I feel like that's kind of, it sounds like it's being kind of brushed under the table, but if you're that person that has a third or fourth degree tear, it's not a small deal. It's a huge deal. And it impacts well beyond the birth. It can really impact um, quality of life. Well, absolutely. And the study, when you read it, they definitely say that because of the concerns for the increased choreo, which remember is as diagnosed by the physician and the hemorrhage, Because of those two things, they are saying we don't recommend that providers offer the option of delayed pushing to mothers. But to me, they're not giving the full picture to the mother. She should know that if she pushes immediately, even without an urge to push, that she's increasing her risk for a third and fourth degree laceration. So I think doctors are withholding critical information and women are unable to make a truly informed Form decision. Choice. Absolutely. Yeah. One question I had as I was also going through there, going through this is, so they're constant. They're they're checking dilation, checking dilation. But is there? I'm not sure. I feel like you might have said this. Is there a baseline for when someone is fully dilated? So, are some are they? Could somebody be fully dilated? Zero station. Something could be plus two, minus two. So that's gonna. And so let me also back up. So for listeners, station is where the, the baby's head is um, in mm-hmm. line with the ischial spines. Those are two, I call them kind of like indents or nubbins in the, in the inner part or the outlet of the pelvis. So it's where the, how high the baby's head is. So somebody could reach full dilation at really any of those points. So if, if it's somebody reads full dilation and the baby's still really high, that gets the clock started and it's kind of exhausting. And then somebody could also be, they could be reach full dilation and the head is low and that's going to impact how long it takes. So was there a baseline or is the baseline only full dilation? Because those variations really make a difference. I'm with you 100%. And they, the baseline was only full dilation. They said so they're missing no- a massive part. Right. Well, they, they did. They did say in the study that there was no difference in the groups based on station at 
the time of full dilation. Okay. So they did look at that, but still, I I did volunteer doula work at Parkland Hospital in Dallas for a couple of years, and I was lucky enough to work with midwives. And some of those midwives, they liked having me come in because I had my background as a childbirth educator, and they would kind of say to me, you know, don't call anybody until she's making really good, you know, birthing sounds. And so that's, I I was comfortable waiting until she was really grunting and obviously doing little pushes. And when the midwives would come in, nothing would change really, except they would pull the sheet off the instrument tray, but there was no special positioning, no special breathing, no special anything, just the midwife saying, just like that. And the woman would push according to what her body was telling her. And you know what? Eventually those babies came out. And those experiences really changed my life as a childbirth educator. Now, if I hear a nurse yelling, push, 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 one, two, three, four, I mean, it's like I get chills. It's like, no, 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 that's not the way birth is supposed to be. And so that's what disturbs me so much about this study is that they're ignoring normal physiology. And I think misrepresenting the results of the study by using definitions that are not consistent with other definitions that they use. That ACOG uses in other publications, right? And then it just as a again as a childbirth educator, I get confused of how to offer this. But now you're explaining it, so now I feel a little clearer. So when I do talk about it, I can say, okay, this is what ACOG said. Here's a newer study, but let's look at the nuances so that you can understand. This actually really helps me. So from your experience in the birthing world, do you see this study working its way into current birthing practices, or or not really? Oh, I, I mean, I hate to say this, but I think that sometimes providers are in a hurry and laboring down takes extra time. Second stage is longer. And so I think that providers absolutely will use this study to say, you know, we used to think it was a good idea and now we don't. It's going to be safer for you and safer for your baby if you push immediately. And I, I, I really don't think that's accurate. And um, one thing I will say that I loved, I mean, ACOG, you know, after this study was published, came out with a practice bulletin, you know, we no longer recommend laboring down. ACNM signed on to that practice bulletin, but then they released a press release that said, you know, yes, we did, but we need to see a lot more um, information. We need more research. But A1, which is the professional organization of um, labor nurses, published a new uh, practice bulletin for management of second stage um, early this year. And when you read through it, it's only about 30 or 40 pages. It's very clear that they do not buy into this study. They talk about this study, um, but they say there's other research and women need to be presented with pros and cons and make their own decision. But you read through their recommendations and it's very clear that they support women pushing when they feel an urge to push, especially with the epidural. All right. But what concerns me though is that ACOG has signed on to that because again, it just, it feels like it takes opportunities away. But so I like how you're saying that we can, as childbirth educators, so how, as a childbirth educator, um, 
how has that impacted how you teach second stage? Do you just more talk about here are the options? Let's dissect this, see where there might be some misunderstanding, but recognize that you might have a higher increase of third or four degrees that they can then make the informed decision. Is that your new approach to it? Or do you not really go into the study? Um, no, I think it's important to talk about the study briefly. You don't want to overwhelm the students, but telling stories, you know, works really well. And so I love telling the story of my experiences at Parkland with the midwives and the babies coming out. And also, um, there are uh, reports and, and studies that indicate that women who do directed pushing are at a higher risk of stroke. Now, it's still a tiny, tiny risk because generally pregnant women are young and healthy. And so because of the Valsalva small. breathing, the, the whole yes, the breath in Valsalva. I mean, you know, I'm a nurse. I, I, that's what the first thing I learned in nursing school practically was, you know, instructing patients not to do the Valsalva mover maneuver, um, when they had heart conditions because of what it does to the blood flow within the body. Oh, and, and let's actually explain what Valsalva is. I keep forgetting. Oh, I'm saying yes. these things and people are like, what is that? So do you want to explain what that is? Yes. Uh, Valsalva is when you hold your breath and ba- bear down as, as, as hard as you can. And it, often people do it when they're trying to have a bowel movement. If they're a little bit constipated, they may hold their breath and really push down. And I mean, this is how Elvis Presley died. I was died. just thinking that as you were saying I'm that. Sorry, I'm like, that just popped into my mind. Yeah, I was just I, about to say, I'm like, I don't know if I'll go there, but thank you for doing I know, that. I did. Sorry. Um, but it's it's also Penny Simpkin calls it purple pushing, yes. and definitely women sometimes have broken blood vessels in their eyes. I had a friend detach her retina from did pushing. She really? she really did. She had bad eyes to begin with, but she detached her retina from her first. Yeah. No, see, see, that's not that's not healthy, and and you know, I just keep going back to what does your body tell you to do, and and like I said, I've been with a lot of women who just push spontaneously and their body doesn't tell them to do Valsalva maneuver. But if they they do have an epidural and they don't have that biofeedback in the body. So I work with the, in the pregnant population. So what we try to focus on is using the transverse abdominals and a slow exhale. So they're not pushing up here. We also know that when we tighten the upper body, the pelvic floor tends to tighten. So I'm trying to teach more of core work and breathing work to hold, to help push the baby down. But I'll also disclose from my own first experience where the baby's head was asynclitic. Mm. I tried every position you, I mean, I pushed for uh, a one hour stint, then took a break. And then almost four hours after that, I pushed with every fiber of my being. And there were times that I, I had to hold my breath and push. And I actually needed some loving, supportive counting because I wouldn't have gotten past like three. So I needed, but it's, I think it's how it's offered instead of like a cheerleader, you know, just like a gentle stream of numbers. Um, but that's also what my body needed. I couldn't just do what I thought, what I had taught other people to do. So I and, think there's a difference. And there's, and that's really important for childbirth educators to, to, to remember and to acknowledge. I mean, we can, you learn to never, ever say never 
you know, don't ever do this because there are times, yes, when counting could be. Ha- I needed uh, it because I literally absolutely. wouldn't have gotten past three of like three moments of effort. I was just so pooped. So, well, and, yeah. and, and I've been in births where, you know, we're not real comfortable with what the baby's heartbeat is doing. I mean, it's normal for the baby's heartbeat to drop a little bit um, with, with second stage, but there's been times where everybody in the room was pretty anxious for that baby to come out. And then by golly, let's count to 10. Let's get her to push absolutely as hard as she can. You know, a a burst blood vessel in the, in the eye is less important than, than getting that baby out if the baby's struggling a little bit. So So I like this conversation that, you know, in in the bell-shaped curve, the norm we would hope is not valsalva breathing, but then there are moments that we look at, is mom okay, is baby okay? Is this the route we're going? Well, if mom and baby aren't okay, that's not that we have to take a turn. So I'm really glad that we're diving into that. And I think it's important for pregnant people and and childbirth educators to let go of this is the only way. You know, that there there are... there's ways that we would like, and then there's sometimes other realities. So thank you for that, that part of the conversation with me. All right. So, um, anything else that you want to add about teaching for second stage? Um, I, I, I don't think so, but I think, I think, um, the, the storytelling and, um, also finding good videos that show a physiologic second stage um, for a long time, I used to uh, show uh, birth in the squatting position in my first class. And I mean, other childbirth educators were, were horrified. It's like, you can't show that. It's too graphic and it's not what they're going to see in this country. But the thing is, is it opens people's eyes. They say, I, I didn't know babies could come out so easily. And you can... I'm not saying that that's what you should do, but that's what I did for a long time just to shake up people's perceptions of you've got all this negative stuff in the media about how horrible and dramatic and screaming childbirth is. And yes, it can be like that, but it can also be like birth in the squatting position where all of a sudden these babies just come out in a very physiologic manner. So um, I think showing physiologic birth and telling positive stories, but then acknowledging that in some cases, you know, you always have to have that caveat. Absolutely. No, I'm really glad that we jumped into this because this and the ARRIVE study, which I know you talked about, and I did a podcast on too, I feel like they're kind of headline grabbers and then people just, they don't know the whole picture and they just jump into like, oh, I should have my baby at 39 weeks. I should be induced or, oh, I should push as soon as I'm 10 centimeters. So we're, we're taking the headline and breaking it down so that people can then make their own choices. They can talk to their care provider and, and consider, and as you said, make informed choices. All right, let's take a quick break. And when I come back, I'm going to ask for one tip or piece of advice you would like to offer new or expectant parents. We'll be right back. Okay, we're back. So what is one tip or piece of advice you would like to offer new or expectant parents? Consider midwifery care. Okay, you want to dive a little more into that? <laughs> yeah, I, I will. I'll, I'll tell a story. Um, I don't think my daughter-in-law would mind this. Before she even tried to get pregnant, I sent her the book Pushed because I knew once she was pregnant, 
I would have to zip it. And um, she actually, she read the book. When she finished it, she called me. She said, Debbie, I didn't know any of this. My friends don't know this. What can I do to have the kind of birth that I want? And I said, you've got to go to a midwife. And um, she chose a combined (laughs) midwife um, OB practice, but she saw mostly the Mm -hmm. midwives. And after her first visit, she called me and she said, my first visit was over an hour and the midwife was incredible. And she said, Jordan, you are meant to have babies. Now, my daughter-in-law is a size zero. She is tiny. I mean, people might say, you know, oh gosh, Jordan, I don't know if you're going to be able to um, give birth vaginally or not. But the midwifery care made all the difference in the world. And the more that I read and do research. I mean, most births are normal. In most countries around the world, midwives handle the normal births and OBs handle the complicated births. And I think that that's a model that we should aim for in this country too. I think let's put our money into funding more midwives and let the OBs handle the complicated um, cases. I mean, my dad was an OB. I'm not anti-OB, but their training is for complicated births and midwives um, training is for normal births and most births are normal and they're really boring I mean you just sit around forever it takes time and I just would love to see more midwife births I like that yeah I was a doula for years I liked I like those births I like sitting around with everyone (laughs) it was fun so where can people find your work um they can go to our website, www.thefamilyway.com. And after my presentation at the Lamaze Live um, conference in April, one of the audience participants asked me to do a one-page talking points on both the ARRIVE study and on this JAMA laboring down study. And those are in the handout section on the website. There's no charge. I'll link um, to that on our website, on the show notes. That, that would be really helpful. I mean, if people could download the talking points on this study before they listen to the uh, interview, it would probably be a little clearer to them because I got a little technical in there, like with the definitions of hemorrhage. But it's all on a, on a one-page um, handout, and they're more than welcome to, to get that. Oh, perfect. Yeah, I'll make sure that that's uh, linked to there. Is there anything else about this important study or the work that you do that you want to share? Um, just that when things like this come out, I would really encourage you to, if at all possible, get the study yourself and read it because often the headlines don't match the study exactly. And also, um, we at the family way, I mean, we do have a Facebook page and you can link to that from our website and we, we post about research and we post about places you can go to read a critical appraisal. The, um, uh, Sharon Musa of Lamaze International does an excellent job on the new Connecting the Dots um, website for childbirth educators on the Lamaze site. Um, Hensi Goer has a regular newsletter and take advantage of, of their expertise and, and sometimes our expertise when we post on things for the family way. 
um, to learn more about what's in that study um, so that you're, you're, you're giving accurate information. I, I feel a little bit bad for OBs with this JAMA study because you have to go to the supplementary material to see how they diagnosed choreo. So they don't know that, that the women had to have 102 temperature to be diagnosed. And the definitions for hemorrhage and severe hemorrhage are in the study, but it's one line here and one line there. And the overall message is increased hemorrhage without the emphasis on no difference in severe hemorrhage. So I, I think that they didn't get the full picture. So um, I, I agree. Guess- that, that's a problem. So they think, you know, because everyone's busy and they right. read this and they might just pick it out and see what they see and, and not dig deeper. So I'm so glad that you are. And, and really as a childbirth educator and someone that also teaches teacher trainings, and I, I present this information, I feel relieved. And I've had other of my students ask me, what do you think of this? And I personally feel so relieved that I can speak to this in such a clearer message that I'm not saying do it or not do it, but here's the information, have a conversation and make a choice. Excellent. I'm really, I'm so excited. Thank you so much. Thank you for all the work you do. It was really exciting to speak with you. It was nice to speak with you too. Thank you. Take care. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening.